Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And not only that, we bring you insight and analysis into everything in terms of debate and issues in the global game. Delighted to say that we are joined today by our usual um, transfer guru, Mr. Duncan Castles, but even more so by a legend in the agency game of football, Bernie Mandich, a man who's been at the forefront of deals for the last 30 years, um, done several, uh, well, probably numerous that we can't even count Bernie transfers that um, people probably know some of them, don't know other of them, but um, you'll bring an insight to us hopefully today, which uh, is unusual because people didn't really know what goes on in the world of agents. Yeah, it's true. Uh, a lot of stuff happens uh, on the periphery, which really never makes the the press. Uh, and quite frankly, the press aren't interested because it's often quite boring, but uh, it does add some clarity to the way life works in football. Well, I can assure you it's never boring, that's for sure. Not with you, Bernie, having a known you for about 25 years so <laughs> I'll, look, I'll look forward to this next 45 minute conversation no uh, we're going to start with some news as we always like to and that is a renewed offer from Manchester United to Leicester City for Harry Maguire it still doesn't quite match Leicester City's expectations because the upfront payment is £60 million with £20 million in add-ons which of course takes it up to uh, Leicester's expected valuation of the player at 80 but it doesn't take it to the 80 million up front which um, we understand that Leicester are hoping for on the basis of reinvesting that money uh, in this particular transfer window. Duncan is he really worth 80 million pounds and do you think this is going to work? I think the listeners know my views on on Harry Maguire and uh, uh, my sense that it's absurd to pay that kind of price for a player who hasn't played Champions League football yet and talking to um, to people in the European game who are paid to uh, recruit players, they find it bizarre that Manchester United are prepared to go to that level for a player. Um, I think particularly when Willy Gunnar Solskjaer gives his first press conference in, in Australia on the pre-season tour and says, um, uh, we are Man United and we don't have to overpay either. You have to have the right players for the right price. And honestly, I, I, I don't even think it's 60 million straight with no bonuses is the right price for Harry Maguire. But if that's the, the player Solskjaer is asking United to recruit and United feel that's the, the solution to their defensive issues, then the, the test will be um, what happens when they get them in the team. Because I really don't see Leicester turning down 60 million uh, plus 80 um, or if they can get that kind of money for a player like Maguire who we know Brendan Rodgers is preparing to replace anyway Bernie you've been in the game as we said a long time you know, more than 30 years you've been doing deals what's your view on the inflation in this market because it has become I think a little bit out of control and you know, how do you view uh, the value of players now with regards to maybe what their actual value is I think it's grossly out of control. Uh, you know, you, you for every Lionel Messi uh, or Ronaldo, um, well, Ronaldo not now, but at his peak, uh, who are actually worth every cent, uh, you know, because the clubs actually 
get value for money year in, year out. I think there are nine players uh, that, that are not, uh, and I'm being, I think, uh, optimistic uh, simply because the sort of sums that are out there, um, you know, it's cast your mind back uh, pre-Premier League. I mean, and especially pre-Bosman, players were virtually the slaves of clubs. And because there wasn't that much money around, no one really gave a hoot. The players didn't give a hoot. The lawyers didn't give a hoot. Uh, and people just went around, went about their business enjoying football. So quite frankly, the players will play because they love the game pretty much if there's no money. I mean, let's face it, the, the, the whole world loves playing football. But we've got this situation which has become completely out of control uh, due to great television money and so forth. And, look, good luck to the players. I, I hope that they, you know, get the best deal possible for themselves. But these transfer fees are just ridiculous. And, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know what the solution is. I don't have a magic formula, but I think it's far, far too much money uh, going about you know, for a bunch of fellows who are more than happy to chase a piece of leather in a park come hell or high water, whether they're, they're playing for Manchester United or whether they, you know, they, they actually stop playing and have to run around the park with their mates. I, that's just my sort of uh, understanding of it over 30 years, the way it's gone. It's interesting you say that, Bernard. Do you think players actually care about the actual fees them, that they Clubs are paying for them. No, Do you, you no, don't. No, absolutely. The, the the players couldn't give a hoot. Uh, I mean, the, everyone basically says, uh, "Look, uh, cut out all the crap. What's there at the end of the day for me? What am I getting?" And if they're happy with it, uh, it's like, "Yeah, fine." And after that, how much agents make? How much clubs make? Players really don't care. Uh, and you know. I think people should care because, you know, the, the cost of, of matches for families and so forth, I think, is becoming very prohibitive. Uh, you know, the, the packages of, you know, in terms of TV and so forth uh, seem to be rising. Uh, and it is the people's game. And, and the, the, you, you have to get to a point of, uh, you know, at, at some point where this circus basically stops. It's uh, look. It's great if you're an agent. It's great. It's great if you're a player. But you know, there, there is uh, there, there is a danger here that there's a major disconnect between the fans and and the clubs, especially it's cockamamie uh, super duper league that uh, the, the guy from Juventus wants to form and a few others, uh, and basically everyone else becomes virtually a feeding club for these super clubs. And once we get to that point, I mean, seriously, whoa, that, that there's something, you know, intrinsically wrong about the people's game basically being for the super elite. Uh, I don't know. That's just my take on it. Duncan, do you think that there is a, a serious um, possibility of disconnect that Bernie met, mentioned? Because if... Players are going to go for £80 million and we think Harry Maguire clearly is not 
that valuable, but in the inflated market, then that is his price. Um, will that turn people off football? Or do you think it makes it more attractive because it looks more elite? I think the popularity of football has grown and grown. Um, but I think a lot of the popularity of the English game, well, you can see it's very obvious it's, glo- it's grown from selling itself as the, as the global um, league. Um, so being the, the, the most popular domestic league to watch and selling itself around the world. So if you look at the, the, the latest TV rights deal for the Premier League, the domestic um, TV packages have actually dropped in value for the first time ever. Uh, whereas the um, the overseas package is again um, has a, a, a big increase, another two hundred fifteen, uh, sorry, two hundred ninety five million pounds, going up to one point four billion um, expected uh, broadcast revenues from overseas deals for um, two thousand nineteen twenty two, and it's on on course for probably the next TV deal for being more than half the revenue. Um, of the, of the entire league for broadcast. What does that mean? I think Bernie's right. Um, the, the clubs are then chasing cash uh, to put into players. And obviously the Premier League has the most, uh, across the board, has the most revenue to invest in players. So across the board um, ends up paying the highest average transfer fees or the, the, the greatest gross amount for transfer fees, not the record individual fees because... Um, PSG have surpassed them and Barcelona in the past. But um, part of the, the way they've obtained revenue to allow them to compete for that isn't just broadcast rights, it's pushing up ticket prices. And um, there, there's definitely an issue for clubs in that uh, the average ticket price is out of, out of range for a lot of the um, historical fans a lot of younger fans I think the um, the age the average age profile of a Premier League supporter has gone up and up so you, you do uh, run the risk of um, removing your uh, client base uh, the people are actually able to watch football in the stadium um, and then you have a question mark over what that does to you long term and whether you can substitute TV revenues and, and distance revenues and social media watching and watching through um, online platforms and apps. You see Manchester United very much pushing their own uh, in-house club app uh, because uh, it's a way for them to generate revenue because they, 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 they then have greater information on their customer base so they can sell to their sponsors, <coughs> increase commercial revenue that way. Um, so I, I think Bernie makes a good point here. Uh, and it, and it's there's an open question about how long you can persist with this model, um, and whether you do risk losing supporters down the line because of this. And, and the European Super League is definitely going to be a factor in that. If if you concentrate that massive amount of broadcast revenue into a fewer and fewer clubs and allow them to uh, dominate the market for players, how do you? Um, what happens to the, the, the broad range of clubs, the rest of clubs who won't have the same product to sell and, and risk losing um, their customer base, their supporters um, off the back of that? It's, you know, I don't think it, any of this is, is particularly strategic on the part of the clubs. I think the clubs, the, the top clubs are now run as businesses, very much as businesses. They chase money, they chase profits. 
Um, they're looking for profit either year by year in the, in the way the Glazers do or um, looking for profit down the line in terms of you buy a club and hold it for 10 years and sell to the next investor um, for a return. So um, I don't think a lot of the owners of football clubs these days have the, the best interests of the sport in mind. It, it's, it's an economic profit-making exercise for them. And they will pursue the strategies required to make their economic profit, um, regardless of other aspects. Well, another update we can bring you um, in today's podcast is the potential move of Romelu Lukaku from Manchester United to Internazionale. Uh, we can tell you that Internazionale have proposed a deal worth £63 million, but with a payment structure which so far Manchester United are unhappy with. Um, at the moment, uh, Inter are willing to offer £23 million up front with staged payments after that, um, but still doesn't meet what United's valuation of the player is, which is £75 million. Now, a kind of intriguing part of this transfer is that Lukaku, as we all know, used to be represented by Mina Raiola, who is, it's safe to say, a sort of infamous name in the world of football agency, um, but changed his uh, agent on the basis he didn't feel that Raiola was looking after his best interests in terms of his career. Bernie, as an agent, how would that feel for Raiola to get dumped by one of his biggest clients? And secondly, do you think Lukaku did the right thing? Uh, look, the, uh, the, the, from what I've seen... Uh, uh, and I, I don't know Raiola personally, but um, he's without a doubt uh, the, the premier dealmaker in the world at the moment. Uh, but it seems like the money definitely comes first and the client second. Uh, and that's that, that, that for me was uh, what happened with Podgar uh, when he went to uh, Manchester United from Juventus. Uh, and, you know, it, it's clearly a case of um, that there has to be, your client's best interests have to come first. Um, and for all of the, you know, supposed bad uh, stuff that I did with, for example, Harry Kuehl, at the end of the day, he had better offers at other clubs and he was the one who chose Liverpool rather than going to Chelsea, for example, or at that time uh, uh, Arsenal or uh, Barcelona because he felt that was, the one, he loved the club. Secondly, he felt that he had the best connection with Gerard Houllier compared to anyone else. Um, and, you know, Houllier put his best case forward personally, whereas other clubs had sporting directors doing it. Um, and... Uh, you know, that made a, uh, a, a, a substantial difference to his thinking. And whereas I, I think Riola basically couldn't care less, it's, bas- it's a case of chase the money. Um, and uh, that's the bit which I don't think is in the best interest of the players. Uh, and it certainly, you know, it doesn't look like uh, that a lot of these things have turned out well for the player, apart from the financial aspect. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are guys like, for example, the legendary agent Giovanni Branchini, who operates in a completely different way 
uh, and he's been around for a long, long time. And you know, he he, he took the boy uh, Mundjukic, the Croatian player from um, uh, from Bayern Munich, when Guardiola didn't want him to Atletico. That didn't work out. Straight away, he took him to Juventus. Uh, the boy did tremendously well. Uh, there was a huge offer from China, which uh, I was partly involved with, that would have tripled Mandzukic's wages, and he stayed at Juventus because his agent basically said to him, "Look, you know, uh, I think for your career, it's the best thing." And obviously, he got a uh, runners-up medal at the World Cup last year, and I guarantee you, he wouldn't have gotten it if he would have been earning three times more money in China. So. They're the sort of things that need to be considered. Bernie, can, can I ask you, that's a, a very interesting story. What, what kind of money would um, Rankini have been passing up on by advising his client uh, that it was in his interest to stay at Juventus rather than take a, a huge offer from China? Look, I, I would never, uh, I avoid um, giving specific numbers, but the discount sure. was 300%. Okay, and and to give you some idea, uh, at that time there was a number of players. Uh, for example, Jacko from Roma was. This was about or what three years ago. Uh, that, that that there's now a one hundred percent tax on all income uh, that players get in China. So that, that never used to happen. So that that's why guys like, for example, Tevez was on fifty two million. US dollars after he had retired, he was actually on $52 million per year because he was a free player. That's the sort of crazy money that there was around. Uh, the average wage for guys like Oscar and people like that is around the 15 million US net mark. I think that's around 11, 12 million quid net. So that's after tax, which is equivalent to earning 24 million pounds a year in, in the Premier League. So the Brazil, a lot of the Brazilian boys have taken that money because it's all about the money. But uh, I can tell you categorically the guys that didn't take it uh, is Dzeko, obviously, Mandzukic, uh, the player um, Kalinic that was uh, at Fiorentina, I think, at the time. Um, and, you know, that's the difference between, I think, having a good agent. I mean, how, many, how much money do you need? At the end of the day, seriously, as a football player, uh, what are you going to do with that stuff? Um, especially when you've come from nothing, as most of them have. So I, I like the idea that there are people out there that say, listen, guys, it's, it's, uh, the big money's here, but what, where are you going to be happy? And, uh, you know, in the case of those three, uh, you know, the two Croatian boys and the Bosnian boy, Jacko, uh, I think they made a tremendous decision. You know, I applaud Wayne Rooney, uh, Stephen Gerrard. They had huge offers to go to China. Uh, Wayne Rooney apparently knocked back twenty million pounds net. Uh, so it's it's uh, you know <laughs> when you I I take take my hat off to him, um, and you know Gerrard as well. I don't know what some he had offered, but uh, you know they're. There are agents and there are agents. And uh, I, I think part of the job is to actually have a good chat to your client. Of course, it's his decision at the end and you respect that, but at least have that conversation rather than simply uh, cashing in. And all I can tell you is that the, from my experience, 
the players with the biggest bank accounts uh, once they retire are not necessarily the happiest players. Uh, it's usually the guys like Modric, for example. He's never been in the top ten paid players at Real Madrid. Never. Uh, I think he 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 may be at number eight now, uh, but you, you, I think that's about as far as he's gotten. So you you ask yourself, you know, could this guy have cashed in? Yes, of course. I mean, he when after the World Cup, he could have gotten anything in China. Didn't want, and. You know, that, that's uh, – I, I applaud that sort of attitude and I think you saw the results last year at the World Cup that a country of 3.9 million people, uh, that's how big Croatia is, uh, came second and people go, oh, you know, maybe they were lucky. Well, what, were they lucky in 98 when they came third? So that's 20 years difference. And the thing that England has to ask themselves in particular is with the amount of money, with the – playing base that they've got, how the hell is a Croatia coming third in 98, producing world-class players for the next 20 years, coming second and knocking out England in the process in Russia last year, how the hell do they do that? And it's got to do with attitude. It's got to do with resilience. It's got to do with, with values. And, you know, I, I don't know the magic formula, but, you know, the Czech Republic has done it very well. Switzerland has done it very well. Uh, and, you know, there, there's something to be said about, you know, how these systems work and how the system in England in particular works because, for me, it ain't working. Considering how much money there is, and obviously AX is the best example. I mean, geez, guys, $80 million for Maguire? I mean, you, you basically, Ajax doesn't pay their entire squad $80 million. So, you know, work that out. Bernie, is that a cultural thing? Because it, it does intrigue me um, that uh, we have a system in England for the last 20, 25 years of um, very, very well-funded Premier League academies where young players are brought through, they're effectively mollycoddled, you know, they, they've got games which are not particularly competitive, they stay in nice hotels, they, you know, they're fed the best food at the canteens, etc., etc. Whereas in countries like Croatia that you mentioned, or even Holland maybe yeah. as well, um, players are coming from, as you said, nothing, to a background where they are hungrier to succeed and therefore they will try better and they will do more work in order to be successful. And that's maybe why a country like Croatia, as you said, 3.9 million people population, uh, comes second in the World Cup uh, compared to England. Well, look, I, I think you, you go back to uh, where once upon a time, if you're an apprentice, there was a system in England that worked very well, actually. Uh, you know, the boys had to, for example, polish the boots of the senior players and that sort of stuff. There was a pecking order and there was uh, – it, it, it's basically football reality. And I think the, the biggest problem that I've, I've come across is, uh, and I'm on record as saying this, wherever the union has become very strong, which, for example, in Australia, the union, the players' union is very strong, the agents are very strong. Uh, in England, the union is very strong. The agents are very strong. 
I think that is detrimental to the to the production of players. Uh, quite seriously, it's like the players are mollycoddled to a ridiculous extent. Uh, and you know, I, I, I'll with that naming the person, but it was during uh, the time where Australian players were well and truly wanted, and now Australian players are, in comparison to the golden generation that was at the 2006 World Cup, are very, very ordinary. I mean, we, we had players across the Premier League in Serie A, in the Bundesliga, uh, doing very well, whereas now you've got to scratch your head and go, you know, Matt Ryan and who else is there? Oh, uh, you know, where's Aaron Moy? Um, there's a guy called Leckie and Hertha. You know, you really have to struggle to come up with any names and the names you come up with, they're not exactly world-class, are they? Uh, you know, so there's my point being that the, 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 the uh, a manager, a very famous manager, possibly your most famous manager in in the UK, uh, when he wanted to sign one of my players, uh, I asked him, "What? Where, where is this guy going to play? Because you have a team full of talent. He said, well, at least one and possibly two players where this boy plays are going to be moving on. I asked, oh, what was his determining factor about a player? And he said, it's always one thing, and it's one thing that money can't buy. And I, uh, I thought about it, and I said, what, love? He, he went, uh, lad, pissed himself laughing and said, no, no, no. Uh, uh, if you have enough money, you can buy plenty of love because everyone loves money. Uh, what it can't buy is just one thing, attitude. Yeah. Attitude, and and that's the that's the thing which is lacking, and it's lacking because the agents and in in partnership with the unions have created, I think, a ridiculous environment uh, where the players pretty much can do what they want. They're molly coddled, uh, mate. In in Croatia, the average wage average wage is about twenty five thousand euros net. Uh, so it's per, like, per year, yeah, per year. So yeah. there's no plan B. It's either plan A or nothing. Or you go work on the farm with the folks or get a crappy job in a factory. And the, and the unemployment rate down there for youth is about 20%. Um, likewise in Bosnia, likewise in Serbia, likewise in Slovenia. And all of these guys keep producing players. And there is no medical insurance. Like, it's a joke. There, there are no... Uh, <laughs> There is no union that comes and, and fights for your rights because you haven't been paid for three months. I mean, it, it, and a lot of clubs are three or four months in the rears. So you just go about your business playing football because you love playing football and you don't have these expectations that someone owes you a living and someone owes you incredible canteen food or whatever and has to look after your allergies and, uh, you know, whatever else goes on at the moment. I'm not suggesting that players don't deserve to be looked after, but there, there has to be a balance. And in terms of Holland, pretty much, you know, okay, their, their wages are a lot better than Croatia. But once again, these boys at AX, I, I would be surprised if their wage bill is over 30 million euros net for the total team. 
And so why doesn't England, but instead of spending these crazy amounts, you need to replicate what works somewhere else. It's, it's a common business situation where, uh, you know, businesses around the world, when something ain't working, they look at a business similar to theirs and say, why is that working? This is what we got to do. But in England, people's attitude is we just got to throw more money at it. Well, it ain't working, guys. <laughs> it's like no, throw money no. At it, but it ain't working. <laughs> so, you know. I remember Bernie, you telling me a story. We don't have to name any players here, but um, that great Leeds United team of sort of um, 1999-2001, and you telling me that there was an argument in the dressing room because one player's wife had a better handbag than the other player's wife. And yeah. it seems to me that that, that was that kind of sums up the molly coddling of these, these players. Oh, yeah. It's, it, well, that was uh, when a player, a Leeds player, was being transferred, he, uh, he met up with, with a, a, a coach that was very interested in him. And over lunch, the guy said to him, the, the coach said to him, um, so tell me, you, now, what's the major reason uh, do you think that Leeds last year was so competitive and now they're a disaster. Uh, he goes handbags and, 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 and the manager, <laughs> manager looked at him and he went, what? He goes handbags. He goes, what does that mean? He went, uh, women's handbags. Uh, it, it, it's the, the women, basically, it's who has got the latest handbag and it's uh, the, 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 your relationships between the players are governed by what relationships the women have with each other. And he said, so the players, basically the men, so these are the men, tough footballers, you're not allowed to, we're not going to socialise with so-and-so because of whatever. And it usually comes down to ridiculous things like handbags or cars or whatever, uh, which sounds nonsensical, uh, but it's like as soon as someone gets something, the other person has to one-up that other person. And they're the sort of things I remember um, uh, David O'Leary said to a player, the guy got a pay rise and uh, it had gotten back to him that he, because Leeds is a small place, he was going to buy a Ferrari. Uh, he pulled him in and said, you buy that effing Ferrari and uh, I, I will make sure that you are sold as soon as possible because that's the last thing the club needs. Unfortunately, he he did buy the F and Ferrari and in the end, uh, O'Leary couldn't do anything about it. So, you know, people often proportion blame, but as a coach, once you make a statement like that, the club has to back you in some capacity. Did David speak out of turn and, and, and uh, overly quickly? Uh, possibly, but you don't say something like that. And soon as you back down, uh, you know, there, there's a famous saying from um, Fabio, uh, not Fabio Capello, what's his name, Ancelotti, uh, when a player said, so the, the person in question was Maldini, legendary, played till he was 40 and so forth. And so uh, uh, another coach said to him, uh, you know, you're fortunate that you've got, you know, Milan Lab and uh, you've got the, uh, a, a guy, exemplary guy like Maldini. And he just looked at him and he said, listen, I'll tell you something about any player, including Maldini. You give him your little fingernail to chew on, the next thing your arm is gone and 
not much later, he will consume your entire body. That's what players are like nowadays. There is too much money and you have to keep all the players in line. And that he said that about 10 years ago. So, you know, it, it's, it's uh, that Ferguson was brilliant at it. As soon as he saw a player's attitude change, he'd be moving them on. Doesn't matter who it was. Uh, it was like he, he knew the timing. And when he made a mistake, that like, for example, Veron and people like that, uh, is it Fallon that was there? He moves them on because he knows, doesn't matter what their contract is, uh, th- these players are going to become a cancer in the team. They're not working. They're on big money. Move them on. Doesn't matter what, loan, whatever. And that's where too many people nowadays aren't prepared to bite the bullet. And, and like, you know, PSG, if they keep Neymar, they have a massive problem. They have to cut their losses, get whatever the hell they can get uh, because the boy is out of control. Paris does that sort of thing to people. There are too many distractions in Paris. And, you know, so Neymar basically is on a hiding to nothing and so is PSG if he stays here. And that's, you know, it's common knowledge. It's been common knowledge for 12 months. The boy's just careering out of control. Great talent, but, you know, made a major mistake and uh, hopefully Barcelona will, will stick to their word and say, hey, you're going to get half the money here if you want to come. If not, see you later. Go somewhere else. There's no takers. Who the hell's going to take Neymar? It's either Barcelona or Barcelona. So, yeah, I, I, you know, the whole dynamic has changed a lot and unless a coach is prepared to be tough and the board back him, then basically it's player power and player power is a dangerous thing. Like Ancelotti so correctly said, they will literally chew you up and spit you out. Uh, and that's what it is in the Premier League. There's too many coaches that are fearful of player clicks. That's the way I see it. And it's been like that, getting worse and worse over the last 20 years. Duncan, as a man who has owned many Ferraris and handbags over the years... <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about yourself again, Ian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm, I'm living my life vicariously here. Um, what's your view on... Uh, we're going to come on to a very different subject of Harvey Elliott and um, his move to Liverpool from Fulham in a minute. However, uh, Bernie did mention Neymar and has been very expressive regarding what Neymar's future holds. Now, we know that Barcelona are playing hardball now with regards to uh, any particular fee for Neymar. Can you bring us up to date, please, on the latest with regards to what Barcelona value the player at and h- how that transfer might work? Yeah, well, I think this follows on very nicely from what Bernie's just told us about uh, Neymar's situation in Paris. Um, we saw last week uh, Leonardo going public and saying uh, what a, sto- uh, a story we'd broken in the podcast uh, over a month ago that they were prepared to sell him this summer um, and warning him about his behaviour if he, he did return to the club and they wouldn't tolerate um, how he's been over the last year. Um, that has led Barcelona to take a very uh, predictable response to the negotiations for the transfer. They know Neymar wants to come there. Um, Neymar has said he will take a pay cut to return, so his, uh, his salary is, is less than Lionel Messi's. Um, and it doesn't mess around with the Barcelona wage structure. Barcelona have said 
to um, Paris Saint-Germain this week, we're not going to pay you the 222 million euros you um, paid to us two years ago uh, for this player. Um, we can include players in the deal um, and uh, a cash sum of up to 70 million euros. Um, the players they're offering include a fairly obvious range who are on the market um, to anyone really this summer from Barcelona. It's Coutinho, Usman Dembele, Samuel Ntiti, Malcolm, Nelson Semedo are all uh, being proposed as possibilities. Um, and uh, Barcelona basically said, we fully understand if you don't want to no- negotiate in this way, uh, have a nice season if, um, if you decide to retain Neymar. So the ball has been placed firmly in, in Paris Saint-Germain's court. Uh, Barcelona have, have seen that uh, PSG have effectively publicly reduced Neymar's value and, uh, and put the player on warning in terms of returning to the club. Neymar hasn't returned for training as he was expected to do. Uh, what I'm told from Neymar's camp is that his, his family are becoming increasingly nervous about the situation for understandable reasons, uh, worried that they will have to return to Paris Saint-Germain. And, and Barcelona, I think, are in a, in a strong position here to, uh, to negotiate a deal that suits them rather than one that suits Paris Saint-Germain. And, and I think Bernie's analysis is completely right here. Paris Saint-Germain do need to bite the bullet uh, and I think also there's a, there has been a realisation within PSG that uh, the player is a liability and it would be sensible to sell. Uh, the question mark for me is to what extent Qatar are going to uh, be able to um, accept the embarrassment of being seen to lose out on the deal in terms of uh, the, the financial proposal put to them. So there's going to be some interesting PR work done around this if it is completed, um, which I, I think if that suggests Coutinho as a, as a real possibility because that, that's probably the most attractive for the players as a player that, that PSG have tried to sign in the past. Um, they could sell that as, look, we're getting a, a top player here um, plus money and, uh, and bring restructure the team in a way that we can uh, properly attack the Champions League next season. Bernie, what's the difference in dynamic when your dad is your agent compared to when, <laughs> compared to when you have a, a proper business professional like yourself as your agent? How does that work? How does that make it more difficult for Neymar in terms of the indulgence, in terms of his professional attitude, and also, of course, his best interest in his career? Well, look, I, I think I always say to people, numbers never lie. Uh, you know, people lie about numbers, but numbers actually, if you look at the cold, hard numbers, uh, they, they're very honest. They're there in black and white. So you look at every single player who's been looked after by his dad, including Messi, and they've messed it up. Like every single player, whether they have a brother or a wife, or whoever. The women, actually, to be fair, have done better. The wives have done a better job than the fathers or the uncles or the brothers. So let, let me put you know, a, uh, a, a, a plug in there for, for women. They seem to take the emotion out of the, 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 the whole thing, apart from, obviously, that lunatic down there at uh, Inter Milan with uh, you know, the porno star with that 
whatever husband, uh, that that's an absolute disgrace. But quite often the women have done a good job. The fathers have done a terrible job. Lionel Messi's father was responsible for a complete stuff up when it came to tax and so forth. So that's you know that that's probably one of the best dads going. But he even he stuffed it up. So you go down the list, and seriously, the fathers make emotional decisions, and you can't. Money and emotion are just a bad combination. You will invariably stuff up. And they, they, they have to be decisions. And at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the happiness of the player is important, but usually the happiness of the player is associated with less money. That's been my experience. You know, it, it's like that there's, when there's options, for whatever reason, the guy that's taken the big dollars has paid a price for it in the quality of life in the, his, you know, injuries and so forth. I mean, for most players to go to England, for example, Croatian or Balkan players generally that go to England, they fail. The money's great, but I tell, tell every single player that wants to go there, guys, you're on a hiding to nothing because the, the physical aspect of that game means that guys that come from Croatia, from Slovenia, from even Spanish players, Look at the list of players from Spain, including the great Torres. They, they can last two, three, four years, and then they get destroyed. The, the, there's too many games. The physical aspect of the game, I honestly don't think there's any harder league in the world. Like, forget the quality, but the speed and the intensity. The Premier League is just crazy. Plus, you add the games. You go to the championship, and that's that's uh, basically a, uh, a roulette wheel. I mean, it's a case of whoever has the least injuries pretty much is destined to finish in the top six because it's so intense. And that's the bit where fathers chase the money and relatives generally, uh, and, and they seem to think that everything else will work itself out if you've got enough money. Well, it won't. And that's where Neymar made a massive mistake by coming to Paris, and I think he'll make a massive mistake if if he continues to stay here. No matter what he's offered, he ought to take it, bite the bullet. I mean, he's he's made enough money for ten lifetimes, so you know, let, let's let's see the boy grow into the player that he actually can be, and grow out of these surly, childish actions that he's been accustomed to performing over the last 12 months. Bernie, you, you've given us your opinion on, on fathers as agents. What's, what's your view on brother-in-laws as agents? I ask because one of the, the most prominent stories this summer is of, of uh, Bruno Fernandes at Sporting, who's been uh, linked with just about every club in England and, and several elsewhere, and he um, is represented by his brother-in-law. Um, little update from the, the, the Portuguese end, they still haven't received an offer uh, from Manchester United, despite all the reports we've seen. Well, that's that. Once again, it, it, it's uh, it, it's a dangerous game when you've got relatives involved. Uh, but you know, I, I I've seen a, a few okay 
uh, brother agents. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Domagoj Bilic, the brother of Slavan, is not, not a bad agent. Um, there are some okay ones, but generally they have a grounding in football. Uh, the ones that don't, uh, I've, I've seen a number of brother-in-laws send their clients broke or send their you know, other brother-in-law broke. It's And it's happened actually with a very prominent Australian who shall remain nameless. But, you know, the cockamamie things that this guy did uh, in terms of business investment was just nuts. Uh, so, you, you know, your football deals may be great. and uh, But, you know, at one point, this particular player was earning something like £90,000 a week for about four years uh, three years after that contract and he'd gone on to earn a lot more money elsewhere in other countries, uh, he had nothing left. I mean, he, he basically can't go back to Australia because he'll, he'll, uh, he'll have to p- p- face a bankruptcy court. I mean, it's, uh, it's really crazy stuff. And, and uh, you know, for me, it, uh, I mean, to give you some idea, we will never handle a player's uh, uh, bank account you know, nothing to do with his financial management. Uh, we always advise him to have an independent person and also have an independent lawyer. We have our own lawyer, but, you know, our attitude is have someone else with, that's totally unrelated to us uh, give you an independent opinion. And, you know, th- this thing about oh, just because someone loves you, they're going to do the right thing by you, um, they may want to, but unfortunately... You know, money and friendships are a dangerous thing, and uh, that's that's been my experience. Uh, and you know, a- across the Balkan region, so many players have lost so much money because of family members. Uh, and that, that's that is a big weakness. The players like the Munjukiches of this world who have had professional agents. And the other thing I'd like to say is that. Uh, uh, the, the players who have pretty much stuck with one, possibly two agents throughout their career tend to do far better and have a lot more money when they retire than people who have ch- had multiple agents. Uh, and that's another fallacy that, you know, I don't want to have an agent come to me with a deal. Like if you've got 20 people looking for you for a deal, I mean, what, what, what incentive have I got to actually be working that hard for you? I may come up with a deal by sheer accident because, you know, I'm talking you know, to Ian and, and Ian says, yeah, we need that player. And I go, oh, yeah, I, I know the agent of such and such bloke and we go that way. But unless someone's prepared to admit to you, uh, like a marriage, it's no different. If someone's playing the field, well, hey, how are you going to have a successful marriage? You know, one person's out there. Uh, gallivanting around with everyone and the other person's meant to be loyal. I mean, give me a break. And that's what players forget. But going back to the whole issue about family members, I don't rate it. I think it should be avoided. I actually think it should be legal, um, you know, because it, it gets clubs in a big mess, uh, a la PSG. You know, I'm sure that this situation wouldn't be like this if there was a, a, a top quality agent involved. Well, as the Cosa Nostra say, Bernie, the only people you can't trust are family. <laughs> so, uh, I think well, I, I, you, I, that, that's a new one. I'll have to write that one down. I, you've never heard that? Well, no. Well, 
you've it's it, the, if for no other reason it's been uh, well worth, worth the chat just to be there, get that, that <laughs> just just for that. <laughs> now, Duncan, Duncan, yeah. Speaking of family and uh, and young people, you've got some news for us regarding, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Harvey Elliott, uh, a young film prodigy who was the youngest player ever to um, perform in the Premier League. Um, he has been attracting Liverpool's interest and indeed there is a brewing conflict, we understand, with regards to his transfer and a first professional contract. Indeed, uh, Harvey Elliott's agreed to sign for Liverpool, um, was actually present at their uh, the friendly match against Tranmere last night. Um, he made his debut for Fulham at age 15, youngest player to play for Fulham played the last two games of their Premier League campaign um, off the bench, becoming the youngest player to play in the Premier League. Um, lots of interest in him. He's the youngest player in his age group, under-17s England, um, uh, right winger, um, described by Scott Parker as a special talent. Um, according to Fulham, um, according to his representative, there were approaches from Leipzig, Madrid, Inter, Schalke, Southampton, several other clubs. Liverpool won that. Um, they have not made any offer to Fulham for the player. Um, I checked that with Liverpool and they declined to comment on it. Fulham's um, guidance says they have received no offer for the player. They believe um, that this could be a, a test case of the tribunal system uh, and that they're not expecting Liverpool to pay their valuation of the player and they feel they may have to go to the, um, the English uh, tribunal system to decide the fee. Um, they cite the fact uh, that he played at such a young age. They um, note that the average academy costs £5 million pounds, um, to, uh, to support each year and um, they feel that players getting picked off at this age before they sign the first professional contract uh, is a significant uh, problem for the academy system if they're not compensated properly. They consider Elliot to be on a par with Jadon Sancho and we've seen what happened to Jadon Sancho when he left Manchester City for around £8 million, went to Germany, is now valued at over 100 million euros and was Manchester United's principal uh, target um, for that right-wing position in this window uh, before they had to back off because the price was so high. Um, so that I think this is going to be an interesting um, little conflict between two English clubs. Um, in a sense, Fulham been, um, it could have been worse for them. Um, they could have had the situation that West Brom have suffered with uh, Louis Barry, who's a, um, an England youth striker who's just signed for Barcelona. Um, if if um, Elliot had chosen to go overseas rather than to Liverpool, they would have only received €270,000 of uh, FIFA-mandated training compensation. Um, but I think we'll, we'll see where this goes. They'll be targeting, I think, the highest fee that uh, a tribunal has, has paid to date or, or determined to date was for Danny Ings in 2016, which was six and a half million pounds um, plus 1.5 million of performance-related uh, bonuses and 20% of a sell-on. And Fulham are targeting a higher price than that for uh, this player, Elliot. Bernie, as an agent, how do you deal with situations where um, you're representing a player, of course, who you're not... <laughs> I think legally you're not allowed to represent a player who's under 17, 
But um, obviously, we know that this thing, these things happen. Um, so, how do you deal with the fact that a club wants him, um, who are other than the club that he's um, engaged with in terms of the academy, and how that works regarding the compensation or tribunal value that Duncan has talked about? Look, I mean, from I think that there has to be a sense of fair play in this, and obviously that there are strict stipulations about what category or club is buying a player and where the player's coming from, and there is a compensation issue involved. Uh, now, uh, the, the fact that there isn't one in England is not the fault of Liverpool, and I think that you know if someone has a decent lawyer, which Liverpool should have, you you could mount a very successful case uh, that basically Fulham are not entitled to anything more than what, for example, and th- this is something where uh, Fulham need to be careful in uh, because if, if I was Liverpool, I'd simply say, look, you know, we're, we're due to give you, let's say, it's half a million pounds uh, because you've had the guy since 12 years of age. Um, we'll give you one million and if you don't take that, uh, we're going to have, you know, say, Leipzig buy him or, or Borussia Dortmund. And after 12 months, we're going to have a buyout clause where they develop him for a year and then we take him back when we feel we're good and ready for five million. So it's that thing of what, what do you guys want to do? The, uh, the law is the law. And at the end of the day, my attitude is you've got to stick by what the rules and regulations are. If England wants to change that, great. Don't have this ridiculous situation where, you know, the player technically can walk out for nothing, but hold on, it's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? Is, is it the law or isn't it the law? Whatever the law is, I'm, I have no doubt Liverpool is, is, if not the most ethical club in the country, it's certainly up there in the top three, and they will abide by the law. But, you know, don't expect them to throw money at something where they're not basically uh, obliged to. And that, that's the silly thing about whatever system you guys have got. To me, it doesn't make sense. I don't think you should be able to waltz away for nothing. Uh, but if, if your FA has been too busy being busy with other things uh, instead of addressing that, then they have a serious question to answer. I mean... You know, that, that to me, the blame should be on the FA not having the right rules and regulations in place when something like this happens. And considering it's happened in 2016, what the hell are you guys been doing uh, for three years? <laughs> I mean... There, there, Bernie, there, there is a system in place yeah. uh, in the sense that there's if you take a player without agreeing a fee um, who is under the age of 24 then you have to pay compensation. And the, okay. the, pre- the preference is that the clubs agree the compensation mutually. Um, if they fail to do that, then the, the training club uh, can take it to a tribunal um, or the, the buying club can take it to a tribunal if they're not happy with the training club's asking price. And then a panel of experts sit down and judge according to um, which clubs have been interested in the player, what the contract offer was from the training club, um, uh, how 
well he's done at international level as a youth player, what his achievements have been to date in his career so far, kind of expectation of what he can achieve. And that's why they, they quite often make these conditional payments where uh, Daniel Sturridge, I think, was another case um, mm. where they, there was a, a guaranteed sum that Manchester City had to pay to take the player and then quite a substantial additional sum if he played certain number of games, scored certain number goals etc so there's a system in place but it's it's uh it's one that is um unpredictable because of the the nature of the tribunal but see that that that's what i'm saying that that's really we have a system but we don't have a system it's uh it should should be crystal clear and why put a player and a club and both clubs through this stuff where the only people making money out of it are actually the bloody lawyers I mean, well, for well, why not simply say, look, these are this is how it's going to work, uh, and you know, if if the player's done this, this is what the fee is. If you've done X, Y, and Z, and it's simply a simple formula. I mean, formulas are not that hard uh, to to generate, and I'm sure that the Premier League clubs and the clubs in the Championship, where you know some of these players come from, uh, would love to be able to go. You know, this is how it is. Do, do we think it's fair? Look, no one's ever going to agree or, or, you know, everyone's going to feel hard done by, but at least, you know, there is a formula there rather than, you know, putting the player. The, the player should be concentrating on playing football and not worrying about this stuff is the bottom line. And the clubs, what you know, they have enough work to do than go to bloody tribunals uh, when something could be legislated uh, with the full agreement of all the clubs. It's not that hard. And in Australia, for example, one of the things they've done well is it's crystal clear how the system works uh, and the club obviously can reduce that if they feel, for example, that there is, uh, you know, the compensation fee for play goes overseas. Uh, the club has to be paid that by FIFA regulations, I think 60,000 euros per year for an Australian club if the, if the player is out of contract. Uh, but they can reduce that and, for example, say get 20% of future on sale. Some clubs do that. Some clubs get as much as 30%, depending on the quality of the player. Uh, but, you know, it's very simple. Oh, it's something that you sort out literally in a couple of days. And surely the Premier League and the, the, the amount of people that they have and the amount of lawyers they have, they can work out something with the uh, with the FA that suits everybody, I I just think that it's it, it keeps coming up, and it makes great headlines. Uh, but is it in the best interest of the game? Mm, I don't think so. Uh, I think it'd be you know have a formula, guys. That's crystal clear, rather than tribunals, uh, because they're subjective. And what one tribunal may rule today, another t- tribunal next year may c- take a completely different approach. And is that fair? You know, I don't know. Um, well, as a journalist, we always love the headlines, but I guess the, the counter-argument would be what happens with the exceptional talent when you find that um, Gareth Bale, for example, uh, if, you have a, if you have a set formula, which is, let's say, a million, a million pounds for the best academy player who's, who's broken into the first team and played international caps, then... Uh, then the, the, the academy like Southampton or the academy like Fulham, who have a, a pretty good reputation for developing players, when they, when they come up with that really good one, 
run, run the big risk of losing him to the um, to the giants of the world because they can afford to to take him before he turns 17 and and, and seduce him with a big uh, wage uh, offer uh, so you you yeah, then, I, then I, you have the question: Why do you invest in an academy if if that that exceptional talent is the one you you always lose for for um, a fraction of what you're putting in to the to run the academy each year? Well, look, I mean, the, it's uh, it's the old chicken and the egg thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you you, you basically you can't have your cake and eat it too. With these sort of things, uh, obviously, the biggest problem is if they go abroad. And you get stuff all or nothing, relatively yeah. speaking. And that's where, you know, I think most English players would prefer to go to a Liverpool or a Manchester United out of a smaller club. And I think for English football, uh, generally, that would be better. But I'd also, I, I think something else that's been missed in this whole equation, uh, what about having what, for example, Manchester City's done very well with a guy called Palaversa at Hayduk? The guy's a great talent, and that paid, you know, the reports are £7 million, whether it's £5 million or seven, or I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but the boy's a great talent, but they've loaned him back to Hayduk. And I think one of the things that uh, should be mandatory, and it's also better for the player, uh, at 17 years of age, uh, to go into the Liverpool first-team squad, unless you're extraordinary, uh, is going to be a tough ask. You know, I mean, it's a big squad. It's so talented. Uh, you know, why not have at least a minimum that he's going to stay at Fulham for another year? Uh, so you, you have to pay a set fee, whatever it is, and it should be a, a certain number of millions because... You know, this whole thing about eighty or 90,000 euros per year compensation simply isn't enough. Uh, so whatever the fee is, and let the guy stay for a mandatory period of another year at Fulham or at Southampton or wherever, you know, whatever the smaller club is. Uh, and therefore, there is still some additional value for, for the club uh, that's selling him, but most importantly, the player is developing with far less stress. Uh, you know, and I, I think they're, they're the sort of issues in terms of player welfare that quite often are ignored because a young player, if, if a Harry Kewell or a Mark Viduka would have gone to a Manchester United at the age of 16 or 17, uh, I think they would have been lost in the system. The fact that they, you know, Viduka went to Dinamo Zagreb at I think it was 18, and Harry basically was a junior there as a 15-year-old at Leeds when they were actually developing, uh, made a massive difference uh, in terms of getting game time and so forth. And they're the sort of things that uh, big clubs, uh, how often have you seen that? I mean, look at a player like Coutinho. He goes to, to Barcelona. Uh, he, he's an incredible player at Liverpool. He's a disaster at Barcelona. And they're, they're the sort of things that, you know, uh, okay, when the money's big enough, you don't mind so much. But when you have a 17-year-old kid, do you, do you want that kid lost in the Liverpool system? No, I mean, look, Klopp is without a doubt is, is a great coach and so, so the, the whole Liverpool setup is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But is it the right thing for a 17-year-old to be there now? I mean, I'm sure he wants to be, but 
That, that, that's the bigger question to me uh, because for the future of English football, you can't have these guys not going to the next stage. Sancho, for example, what a great example. I mean, how, how good is it that, you know, he's doing what he's doing? And uh, the, the other thing I, I'd like to ask you guys, because you're there in the system, would it be better for a player like this to actually go to, to a place like Germany where he hasn't got the microscope of what I would call the most intense media in the world? You know, he's over there. People don't notice as much unless he does something great. If he does something bad, uh, people don't really report it. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about bad socially. I'm talking about, you know, if he's not performing, great. Uh, and, you know, so there's a whole bunch of issues here when it comes to young talent that's critical when they're at that what I'd call still a delicate football age. And yeah, you you raise very very important issues and relevant issues. And I think that all of these things are are, are reasons why English football has struggled. Uh, these young players, a lot of money at an early age and, and, and being mollycoddled by the system, that is a complaint I hear from people working at Premier League clubs on a repeat basis. That they, they feel there's a real issue with creating characters and creating resilience and robustness yeah. in these talented young players. And, um, and if you don't do that, you don't end up with the, the the, the product you're trying to produce, which is a, a top-level, fully competitive uh, international footballer. And, and yes, there's still, you mentioned earlier the problem of paying a development pass. As you, as you say, the, the 17-year-old going to Liverpool um, will have to be absolutely exceptional to, to get first-team time. You look at Manchester City, who have um, probably spent more than any other club in England on their academy, um, in the last 10 years since Abu Dhabi started spending on every area of that club, um, probably have the best roster of young talent. The only kid who's managed to break into that team and is only just getting into the team is Phil Foden, who is considered to be the absolute best um, of that generation of, of young English players, probably along with uh, Jaden Sancho, who was also at Manchester City. And... Uh, and forced his exit because he wanted to play first-team football um, and, and made the right decision, uh, got out of England. Um, I'm not sure it, it works from the attention perspective. I think it probably only works for a short period of time, um, having watched what's happened with Jadon Sancho. But it, certainly as a, in terms of getting game time, and, and I think more importantly, learning a different kind of football. Um, I don't think there are many footballers in, in the, at this current age who... Um, prosper by spending their entire career in one uh, league, uh, whereas most English players end up doing that and have done that historically. So this this sort of switch where you see um, foreign clubs targeting the top talents like Sancho and inviting them to go overseas and play could be very beneficial for English football down oh, the line. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I would say to you, uh, you know, all of these things, obviously, you can say they're hypothetical, but if Sancho would have stayed, at Manchester City, he would not be in the squad. And I'll give you a wonderful example of what Juventus has got at the moment, around 80 players that are on loan. They own them. And there was, at one point a couple of years ago, three players were playing for Italy that were owned by Juventus, but they weren't at Juventus. They'd never kicked the ball for Juventus. And 
you know, it's it's uh, this hoarding of players is crazy. You know, Chelsea's got thirty odd. Manchester City has, I think, a similar amount that are around the world alone, uh, in addition to what they've got there. But this is the the whole problem with this this non what I think is a crazy idea of having this super league. Uh, you can't have the hoarding of players, and you simply sign a player so someone else can't have it. And, and you know, when it comes to these young boys, absolutely they would benefit, and England would benefit uh, if they were getting football experience in Spain, getting another language to start with. Getting, a, I mean, the the the. the uh, Read an article, it's actually on the BBC, about uh, Tom uh, Wolfe, the guy who runs Mercedes Formula One, and what what he's done and the way he approaches with a totally different uh, look at the way Formula One was actually run, including cockamamie things that a lot of people say, meditation and so forth, which I remember Hoddle used to be laughed at for, but... uh, you, you, you've got over a thousand people that are part of that Mercedes team that meditate. Now, I'm not suggesting that should happen across the board in football. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is thinking differently uh, is the go and getting a different culture and getting a different language makes your mind uh, far more expansive in everything, including your football. It's just how the human mind works. But if you're surrounded by everyone that you know, the same system day in, day out, and you're simply literally going up the road from London to Liverpool, how good is that for you? You know, it's like, uh, hence why I say maybe it's better to stay another year in London. But at the end of the day, absolutely, uh, part of the reason that my wife and I came to France uh, was because of the education system for the kids. Learn another language, broaden your mind. And not, not, I could have lived anywhere, but we chose France because it was bloody difficult for the kids. The most <laughs> difficult education system on the planet is here. And, you know, Australia is the complete opposite. So how do you round out these people and make them better people? You know, Sancho, wow, poster child of what should happen. And, you know, you, you never know. Klopp, he's a smart guy. I'd be shocked and amazed if this kid wasn't... Uh, put on loan to another German club. That, you know, I, I can't see that, you know, someone as intelligent as Klopp wouldn't have that game plan. Could be wrong, but that, that's what should be mandatory. Get these kids into another environment uh, and uh, because they are kids. At 17 years of age, can't even join the bloody army, can he? I mean, so, you know, you, you, he's, you not, really, he's not even 17 yet. He's not even 17 till April. Well, there you go. And, I mean, for, you know, these, it, it, it's like the, the, the simplicity of life doesn't teach you very much. It, it's the complex and the difficult when you're a footballer. And that's why the Croatian boys, you know, they, they got to, most of the Croatian team tend to come from really lousy areas of, of the country. Now, the difference is that in England, the boys are coming out of, a small city going to a big city. These guys are coming out of a village quite often, quite often out of Bosnia, uh, which is really godforsaken, let me tell you. And then they go into a big city like Split, 
uh, okay, big city is only 300,000 people, so it's not that big compared to England, but still for them it's massive. they got to go to the Eka or they got to go to, to Zagreb. And these kids, uh, it, it is in, a, in one way, it's the same country and the same language, but the culture and, and, and what you have to do to – and the clubs knew nothing for you, so we're clear. You literally have to grow up. You have to find your own apartment. The club doesn't find you an apartment. They don't buy you a car. Uh, you have enough to live on. You take care of your own medical stuff because there, there's a health system, but it's completely dysfunctional. Uh, you know, you don't get paid. You've got to know how to borrow money from your mates and pay them back, that sort of stuff. And it sets you up. When you get to England, you can do what a Modric does or, or a Lovren or whoever. You know, it's it's uh, uh, it's a completely different approach, and you you have a look at these guys, and you know they're around the world, and you know Rakitic and fellows like that. They're just regular people. There's no airs and graces about them. Uh, you know, they, they they simply get on with life, and they don't really care. They don't get caught up with all the bullshit, and. You know that's that's something which I think would be great for the for the young English kids. But you know, for for every opinion, there's an opposing one. But that, that's my two bobs worth. Your two bobs worth is very very viable in this particular podcast. I can assure you, Bernie. Um, and for our listeners, um, I have to say you count on us for giving you the latest news. But we also have the best guests and the grand homme terrible is definitely Bernie Mandich in this particular <laughs> podcast. We're going to ask Bernie now, um, in his 30 years of experience on the quickfire round, the best value transfers he's ever um, experienced. Does not be ones he's been involved in, but has to be um, what he thinks were um, good value for money and um, in terms of the fee and contract, and uh, and also, obviously, the outcome of that transfer in terms of medals. So, Bernie, please give us your, well, give us your top one to start with, and then Duncan can reply. Oh, I think without doubt, Modric. I mean, oh, I don't, I honestly don't think that uh, you can go past uh, what he has achieved. Uh, in, and just to give you some background, this kid, the, the, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. There's a video of him uh, looking after sheep uh, with his granddad. Sorry, sorry, looking yeah. after sheep. Sheep, sheep. So, 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 he was a, so he was a shepherd. Uh, he was a shepherd. There's a video. On, you, you can get it on, on YouTube. Uh, and and he's, he's there looking after sheep uh, in the mountains. Uh, there's a little hut thing or, or whatever in the background. And there are wolves basically sitting there looking down upon him and the sheep. And he would be, I think, six, seven years of age. So he, this, this is the, when you're talking about resilience and attitude. I suspect, I mean, Bernie, he wasn't probably even like, he was probably the same size as he is now. Yeah, pretty much. Was, yeah. Seven, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh, but, the, you know, the, it, it, and it, it's, so he's a, Quick background, when people talk about, especially you're talking about young players. So he, he gets signed as a talent, but he's that little that he amounts to nothing at Dynamo. Dynamo loans him out to a club called Zdrinsky. 
Now, at that time, uh, Zrinsky now uh, is has got a cow paddock of a um, of a football ground, you might say. Uh, but at that time, it was worse. Uh, it, it, it's in Mostar, which is you know uh, when he was on loan to them, they would be getting a few hundred people to watch, and he was. So he goes to Bosnia, uh, and from there he goes to a club called Inter or something or other, uh, another small crappy club in Croatia, and no one actually wants to buy him because he's so small and so frail. But does he complain? No. So he's bit, uh, like so. Imagine, imagine now if. Uh, uh, you know, whoever the player is that, say, 17, 18 has potential and someone decides, like Liverpool has him, and then they put him in, say, the third division of England, English football or League One, as you guys call it, that would be an outrage. That would, the players' union would be outraged. The parents would be outraged. Zero complaints. So he goes there, goes back to Dynamo and is a fringe player uh, Kranchard, as you may recall, in 2006 was the one who played at the World Cup, not Modric. Um, and his entire life, he's been t- told that he's crap. He's not good enough. And he just goes about, what, you know, like one of them Duracell battery bunnies doing his thing and uh, goes to Tottenham. And from Tottenham goes for a relatively speaking small fee to, to Real Madrid. At Real Madrid... The first year, he is regarded, and there's plenty of quotes you can find from the Spanish media as, quote, the worst signing Real Madrid has ever made. The worst. Not, not bad, but the worst. <laughs> and, I mean, <laughs> look at him now. It's like, guys, and the, the beauty of it is that he's been great value for money because, as I said, the last count, I think he finally sneaked in as number eight on the best paid players list in Real Madrid. In the world, he's probably, you know, in the 40s. Uh, But at Real Madrid, he's number eight. So, you know, does he complain? No. Does he want more? No. Does he want to transfer? No. Uh, It's that. So for me, hands down, uh, he's the best value for money. What do you guys reckon? Duncan, do you agree? I think, yeah, I think that that is a a great shout. Mainly because of the scepticism that Bernie mentions. He was Tottenham's record transfer at the time. Um, I think sixteen and a half million. Um, I believe that was a Damian Connolly driven transfer. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, who left the club not long after he arrived there, and there was a huge amount of scepticism because of the the physical stature and people thinking a player like that is not going to be managed to play in the central midfield for an English team. Um, proved them all wrong and Madrid again I think I think um, that was the second highest transfer fee that Madrid paid when Jose Mourinho was manager that was very much his signing um, and for reasons you could you are pretty obvious to see because he is a he is the antithesis of a Florentino Perez um, transfer in that he's uh, he's not good looking um, he's not um, an athletic player. He's not a, a big star Galactico name. 
but the value for money that Real Madrid have had out of him as a player is absolutely exceptional. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a great shout as one of the one of the best value for money um, players in multiple transfers um, that we've seen in, in modern times. Bernie, give us number two, please. Number two, uh, well, my, my number two has to be Jacob Burns uh, from that that uh, I took from um, a small club Parramatta to uh, to Leeds, and uh, in in the third game he was he was playing at Old Trafford against Manchester United. Uh, he never turned out to be a, a great player, but in terms of the money, the guy is, is uh, probably the the least talented player. But uh, no, no, seriously, like in terms of natural talent, but his determination is unbelievable. He actually had to go on trial there, and what got him the contract is because he took out Lee Bowyer uh, and actually smashed him into the boardings during training. And uh, and then faced off with him, which no one has ever done. Anyone uh, who takes certainly Boyer yeah. is is good in my book. Well, mate, he's uh, so in in terms of um, uh, someone becoming a multi-billionaire, uh, not on talent but on sheer determination. And, and I have to say, Timmy Kale uh, is without doubt that because once again, Tim was rejected by small clubs in Australia. He left Australia because nobody wanted him. And what he's done, I mean, he's never been one of the top 50 players in the world, but what he's done for himself and for Australia, unbelievable. You know, the highest goal scorer in Australian history uh, and, again, sheer determination, you know, the sheer will to, uh, uh, to do whatever it takes and and that's the bit that's br- missing in so many British players that are so talented. That resilience, that absolute, you know, I am going to do it no matter what. Uh, instead of making bloody excuses about, oh well, it's the, the gaffer's fault and it's my agent's fault and it, it's the physio he's not fixing me right. Uh, you know, it, it's always someone else's fault. These guys, they're just and and, and Modric is the same. And and that's where. You know, like the the, uh, the legendary manager said, it's the attitude and it's the resilience. Uh, and so, I um I have a different parameter compared to others. I mean, there's been far more talented players around than these two guys, but they'd sort of that that'd be my top three in short. So, well, after Jacob Bonds, I can't wait for the third one. <laughs> well, no, Tim Kale. Tim Kale oh, is my I love, third one. I love yeah. It. I love them. Yeah, yeah. So t- Tim Kale, uh, like they're, they're, they're the three that uh, you know. I I admire the players, those three players, uh, the most because they've achieved far more than anyone thought they could, and possibly even than they thought they could. Because Modric just plays because he loves playing. He, he's never been about you know. I think I'm the greatest, and I think you can see in his. Uh, acceptance speech of best player uh, last year that, you know, it was like, uh, uh, you know, thanks, uh, but, you know, I owe this to everybody else. And, and he, he meant it. He doesn't he actually, not in a month of Sundays would he think that the reason he is where he is is because of himself. It's like the coaches, the other players, etc. because uh, he just loves playing football. And that's the bit that I, I think uh, – 
is missing in this day and age, and I, I greatly admire it when I see it. I think I think that that's right. I think the the parameter that I've noticed in working as a football journalist for you know best part of two decades is that the, the absolute top players love the game, mm-hmm. and their motivation is to demonstrate that they uh, can win and and can and be the best on the field. And the financial side comes secondary to that. It's 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 almost a competition. I've seen top players, Cristiano Ronaldo is a great example, who wants to be the best paid in the world because it's another trophy for him to win more than anything else. And um, I can't comment on Jacob Burns, um, but Tim Cahill uh, was actually the first footballer I interviewed when I moved back uh, to England from Japan um, as, a, as a football journalist um, in 2003, um, basically in a public park in <laughs> South London where we were training at the time, um, sat down on the grass by the side of the pitch with Tim and had a fantastic interview. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I saw then that kind of focus that Bernie's talking about and, and uh, not a surprise that he, he managed to take his abilities and turn it into the career he did because he did have that quality about him um, and that's I think Bernie's absolutely right that that takes you a great great long way in football if you love the sport and you want to achieve the best on the field and and I've I got to give uh, Vinnie Jones an honourable mention I think <laughs> <laughs> do you have to? I, <laughs> I, I do I do uh, it's like, I mean, that, that guy took it to another level after football and considering all these demons. I mean, they're the sort of things that just don't get enough attention. Uh, and out of the modern era guys there in the Premier League, Van Dyke uh, is, is a hell of a character. I mean, he, he really, uh, to me, he, he could be, he, you know, down the track, uh, I, I think quite possibly he's going to be my Modric uh, category because once again he was told he was a nothing and a nobody uh, and uh, you know he's uh, what, what a tremendous leader what a great guy and you know what, what he says isn't for the media he simply says it how he thinks it uh, because too many of these things uh, you know when you've been in my game uh, for as long as I have you can sense when someone is doing these so-called good public works and they've been totally staged. And far too often that's the case. Uh, and uh, I, I don't have a great deal of respect for that because, you know, it's, it's nice that they're doing it, but, you know, guys that go about their business and, and, and doing charitable things without any fanfare, uh, and which I can assure you Van Dyke does, uh, and you know, just his background and so forth. That that's that that's the sort of stuff. I wish the media would call out the hypocrites far more often than give them the the airspace and the oxygen for their pure self promotion, rather than actual <laughs> real good causes, so to speak. Uh, because stage management for me is just far too much of it. Um, and uh, you know, but as I said, that just. Uh, my my simplistic uh, way of, of of looking at football. I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm not in love with that uh, crazy wild lifestyle that goes with it. And at that point, people, we have to call in to what has been probably 
the most entertaining and informative podcast of the transfer window. Um, wonderful, wonderful um, insight from Bernie Mandich and from Duncan Castles. And we thank both of them for that. We'll also say to you that if you want to continue to do it, please do with um, uh, our at transfer podcast handle on Twitter. Also um, at Duncan Castles and me at Garbos J. Um, we will uh, hopefully be able to um, equal this kind of uh, perfect uh, storm of um, incredible uh, informative and entertaining podcast next Monday. Um, until then, if you want to get something back, please do. And that will be uh, log on to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, which obviously helps us to reach more people. Until then, it will be uh, Monday when we're back and we hope to see you through the transfer window. Um, from now, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>